things that begin everything, set things in motion, right? And we've been studying about Genesis and how Adam and Eve partook of the fruit they weren't supposed to of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, does anybody remember what kind of fruit was on that tree? Was it apples? Think about stuff, you know. <clears throat> they partook of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And that set in motion all sorts of things for humanity down to our day. And the problem of evil, especially, has a particular significance for human beings. If it were simply good that we were confronted by every day, then this would be much more like the Garden of Eden than the world that we live in. If all, we, all that confronted us was good. And that was on the tree, wasn't it? The knowledge of good. But there was also the knowledge of evil that was on the tree. Ah. And the knowledge of evil became very important, not only in the garden, but as soon as they left the garden, and we don't know how long thereafter, but soon thereafter, their firstborn killed their secondborn. The first murder occurred in the world with the knowledge of good and evil that was released into the world. And so the problem of evil from then on has dominated human existence. And if you think about it, just about every religion in the world is attempting to deal with the problem of evil. It's trying to figure out what shall we do with this. Even the doctrine of God, the doctrine of God has something to do with the problem of evil because God is the solution for evil. And so the problem of evil is significant. It, it, it generates all sorts of thought and, and belief and ideas and practice. What do we do with evil? And how is it displayed? And how does it get here? And, and, and how does it stay here? And once it's here, what do we do with it? And the problem of evil is significant. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, and that's going to continue our discussion this morning, the good and evil part. But we're heading off down the road into some thinking that comes from that. And, and how it, it leads us into a better life. You say the problem of evil leads us into a better life. Yes, it does. Because the better life comes from dealing with the problem of evil. Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we're going to read about six verses, starting at verse 15 down to the end. So you pray for us. See, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel after... Um, God has delivered the commandments to his people and told them about the tabernacle and explained to them what he expected of them and all of that. And now Moses is sort of summing up what uh, God has had to say, you know, these past several months perhaps. I have set before thee this day life and good, life and good. Notice what is connected to life and what is connected to death. I have set before thee this day life and good, death and evil. Good and evil now are connected with life and death. Good and evil connected with life and death. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, his ways, to keep his commandments, and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply, the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. But if thy heart turn away, so that thou wilt not hear, but shalt be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, 
I denounce or I declare unto you this day that you shall surely perish and that you shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou possessest, passest over Jordan to go to possess it. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you, what? Life and death. And life and death is connected with good and evil. Blessing and cursing. Life and death is connected also with blessing and cursing. Life is connected with blessing and good. Evil is connected with death and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God, that thou mayest obey his, uh, obey his voice, that thou mayest cleave unto him, for he is thy life and thy length of thy days, that thou mayest dwell in the land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. Amen. So we'll ask the Lord to help us this morning. What did he say? Choose life. Choose life. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. Everybody here want to choose life this morning? Choose life. Choose life. If we choose life, we choose good. If we choose life, we choose blessing. Now, somebody said one of the gifts of God that he's given to humanity is the ability to freely choose. And it's evident here, he has given us the gift of free will. And the gift of free will is the ability to not only choose life, but also to choose death. And if we weren't able to choose life, then there would be no choice. We would be destined for death and destined for cursing. Amen. But God has given us a blessing. He's given us a, a gift, which is the ability to choose life. And that's the subject of our thought this morning. When we think about good and evil and how it's related to life and death, choose life. Choose life. But to choose life requires something, doesn't it? Because if we choose life, we're going to find that we can't do it on our own. Because invariably, these choices that Moses is telling the people, and he says, choose life, invariably, Death gets in the way, and if evil is present, curses get in the way. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to get ahead of myself, but there are thoughts in the world today. That's why I say the problem of evil demands a response. It demands something, and religions are created to deal with the problem of evil. And there's a thought in some religion that we are creatures of free will and that we are commanded to somehow choose life more than death, to choose good more than evil, that we have these natures within us. One is an inclination toward the good and another is an inclination toward the evil. And every human has this. This is how it goes. This is how the story goes. And therefore, um, we're going to be afflicted by one or the other. But on balance, our goal is to choose life more than evil. Well, now, at that point, I'm not sure how the story continues, because at some point, all of us are going to die physically. And I don't know what the evidence is at that point for what happens next. If all we've done by our own devices is to choose good more than evil, well, what if we've made some really evil decisions, and we've really hurt people, perhaps even killed somebody. And then we thought, well, I repent of that murder, but um, I, I really would like to 
change my direction. I'd like, to, I'd like to be on a path of good. And, and so forth. And religion flows from this. But it all comes from people trying to do business with, what do I do about evil? And then people start to think about, well, maybe, maybe to do good, I need to repent of the evil that I do. And some folks assign days of the year for that, or days of the week for that, or, or, or days or times in which people will meditate on the bad things they've done and seek forgiveness or repentance. And then, and then, but then it just goes back to repeating the same pattern, a pattern of sometimes good, sometimes evil. And hopefully by the time we're done, we do more good than more evil. None of that requires a savior. That whole plan, and many religions are constructed that way to try and deal with the problem of evil. None of that requires a savior. It's only by our own devices and our knowledge and perhaps some sort of thought or intuition or something that we, we hope that we do better or we become better as time goes on. But ultimately, none of that requires a Messiah. None of it requires a savior. And whole religions are constructed around this. And some say that the Messiah hasn't come, that we're still waiting for the Messiah. And the reason people say that sometimes is because the scripture and the prophecy that foretells the coming of the Messiah hasn't been fulfilled yet. Well, if the Messiah ever came for that religion, I'm not sure what the difference would be other than the Messiah would somehow change everything. He would bring peace into the world. He, he would bring uh, uh, an obedience to the law of God and everyone would, would, would know this law and all would follow this law and, and something like that. But in the meantime here, that, that plan of religion, it doesn't require a Messiah. All it requires is human effort. It's a very humanistic way at looking at God. Now, you say, well, I can see some religions might follow that. There are even certain Christian sort of inclinations that believe this way, that, you know what, we're destined as humans with these two inclinations within us, the inclination to do good and the inclination to do evil. It's our destiny. We can never escape it. But then they'll say, well, we accept Jesus as the Messiah. We accept him as the Savior. We acknowledge him. We submit to that idea. But it won't change these two inclinations that are in us. We will continue to be motivated either by sometimes good or sometimes evil. That, too, is a humanistic way of religion. It requires a lot of human to make it work. That is not the witness that Jesus left us. It's not the witness that the apostles have left us that followed Jesus. We need much less of the human and much more of the divine in order to solve the problem of evil. So we want to talk this morning about this alienation that comes from evil, that, that what really happens when evil is manifested, what really happens when sin happens. We want to talk about that. And the hopelessness that that produces, but at the end, how necessary it is for a savior. Why? The real Christian witness, the real Christian testimony of this problem of evil, the, what, what Christianity really offers to solve the problem of evil, it must have a savior. It won't work without a savior. And the savior means certain things for us in our thinking and our behavior and everything. So we want to talk about that. The alienation that sin causes, the hopelessness that results from it, and how that must demand a savior. We must do business with Christ. You know, I thought about that again this morning. We human beings have lots of ideas, and trying to figure out God is really hard for us because we have little teeny brains. 
But we got little teeny brains. And we might understand something about Scripture, but our little teeny brains are trying very hard to understand a magnificent God. And he's far higher than our little teeny brains will ever get it. I, I've been thinking lately, that should cause us to be a little bit more humble than we usually are. Even if we think we have this right and we know this, don't let it rob you of humility that your little teeny brain has captured what it thinks it knows. But God is much bigger than our little teeny brain. And that humility also should allow us to be much more patient, right? And much more kind and much more long-suffering with people who don't agree with us. Because we're all in the same boat. We all are confronted with the problem of evil and what to do about it. We think we know what the witness of Christ is, and we hope we do. And this is not a hope so, maybe so salvation. Don't get me wrong. But we need to remember we are little tiny people with little tiny brains trying very hard to understand an almighty God. And our neighbor, who also is confronted by the same problem of evil, might be approaching it from a different perspective. Amen. And the humility that comes from knowing this that leads to long-suffering and patience and kindness, amen, will deliver the gospel. I'm convinced of this. But sin alienates us. That's the problem of evil. That's where the cursing comes from. God gave us this gift of free will, the knowledge of good and evil. Now, some people say that the tree actually was the gift of free choice, the gift of free will. They say that before Eve partook of the tree and shared it with Adam, that really they had no choice. There was no evidence that the next decision was going to be evil. It is only after they partook of the tree. I'm not so sure about that. They had free will. They were created with free will. That is what allowed Eve to partake of the tree, even knowing the commandment that God said, don't do it. That's what free will is. We're allowed to make bad decisions, even though we know what the right ones are. So I believe that both Adam and Eve had free will before they ever partook of the tree. Otherwise, they would never have done it. God gave us this gift of free will. It's the freedom to choose right and the freedom to choose wrong. And that's why in Deuteronomy, Moses said, choose life. And I, I hope all of us can agree this morning, I choose life. Because that has serious consequences. If we say, I choose life, that means I choose not evil. But if you say, I choose not evil, you're going to need some help with that. Because otherwise it becomes a very human religion. It becomes a, well, I'll try and do my best. And I know that I'm not supposed to partake of that. Um, and I know the preacher said, choose life. But you know, in this moment, I, 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 I'm just getting what I need from choosing evil. And so, and so that'll be my choice. We're going to need some help with this. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 13. God says, um, sin alienates us from God. You know, there is a religious persuasion today that also says that sin is the disobedience of the law or any law. And if it's a disobedience of the law and that's all it is, then the remedy is contained within the law. If, if I go through this stop sign out here, I, I violate the law, and I get pulled over, and I get a ticket. Well, then I pay the ticket, and that problem is over. The law contains a remedy for fixing what was violated. That's all it is. 
If I steal something and I get caught and it's a crime, then I'm punished. Maybe I have to pay back. The law contains the remedy. It doesn't change. Now, in this way of thinking, follow me here. In this way of thinking where the law itself contains the remedy for the fix, it doesn't change my nature. The only thing that happens is I pay the penalty, I move on. See? And that's how a lot of people look at repentance. I did something wrong, I shouldn't have done it, but it didn't change me. I just did something wrong, and so we serve a merciful God, and so what I do is I get on my knees, I repent for what I did, I get up. The law contains a remedy itself for fixing the problem, but it doesn't change me. It doesn't change me. But that's not really what the witness of the Bible says. Chapter 4, verse 13. And there's more than this. I'm just reading a couple of these. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain killed his brother. God was going to evict him as a fugitive and a vagabond. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. Look, he's talking to God, and Cain says, you've driven me out from your presence, and I will be hid from your face. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. Why? Because God, well, had cast him from his presence, and because Cain had killed his brother. And everyone would know, this is a murderer, he deserves to die. Well, then the Lord said um, he, he, would, he would put a mark on him that whosoever should touch him and or his family, you know, would be, would be punished by God. He would put a mark on Cain. But you look at how Cain is talking here. He's cast out from the presence of God. Sin alienates us from God. There's a severe consequence for sin. This is not how a lot of religion portrays sin. Sin is simply something you repent for, the law fixes it, you move on. No, 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 no. Sin alienates us from God. Sin separates us from God. We might say that we are, you know, somehow connected with God because we believe God and we have a desire to serve God, but you know I have these evil inclinations and sometimes they take me and so forth, right? And we don't take responsibility for our behavior. See, this is a criticism people who don't understand this witness say, that somehow Christians don't take responsibility, we give it all to Jesus, right? And he takes our load and he carries our burden and we give it all to him. So we create burdens and then we give them to Jesus. And therefore, somehow we're not responsible for our sin. We are responsible for our sin. We are responsible for when we hurt somebody. We are responsible for when we take something from somebody. It, the Bible, we follow this. If it tells us, if I, if, if I took something and it didn't belong to me, I need to make restitution to that person. If we get saved at the altar... We bow at an altar and we ask God to forgive us of our sins because we have a determination. I want, to, I want to go a different direction. Well, then we get up from that altar and the Lord reminds us tomorrow or the next day, remember that which you took from your parents. Remember that which you took from so-and-so. Remember that which doesn't belong to you. Remember the debt that you owe. The Bible still teaches us we need to make restitution. We need to pay back some things that we've taken that didn't belong to us. Amen? If the Lord reminds you that you owe something to somebody, we need to pay it back. We can't just go on and say, well, they've forgotten about it. There was a king once who felt that way. And Samuel, the Lord told Samuel, no, 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 I have not forgotten about it. And he didn't get to keep his life. If we've taken something, if something didn't belong to us, if we've harmed somebody, if we owe somebody something, we need to pay that back. Amen. Amen. That's important because otherwise, this is, this is kind of phony. We get this sort of, we say that we're sealed by God's mercy, but we, 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 we owe people things. And we just say, well, that's under the blood. 
No, God teaches restitution. It is under the blood, but only, look at, if the brother knows that I owe him something, and it's something that I can do something about, and I just say, well, it's under the blood, and I, 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 I pretend like, no, 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 you, you, you don't have right to that anymore, brother. That's a, you know, he lent me $1,000, and I never paid it back. And then I get saved. I'm glad I got saved. That's under the blood. A thousand dollars is under the blood. No. And if I don't pay him back and I know that I owe it, I'm going to have a problem. So no, we are responsible for our sin. And it does alienate us from God. Paul said, by the time we get to the New Testament, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Why? Because sin had a tendency to alienate him from God. This wasn't insignificant when Paul says this. He's trying, he's trying to be connected to a God who who has given his people a law. And Paul is trying desperately to please this God that has given this law. And he knows that if he offends in one, he offends in all. And there's 613 of these commandments. And invariably, he, he finds himself being confronted by a violation of that law. But he doesn't simply want to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice because that's what the law commanded. You offer a sacrifice, and depending on the violation, it can either be this kind of sacrifice or that kind of sacrifice. He doesn't want to do that because he wants to stay connected to God, not simply make it right when he has become disconnected once again, he wants to stay connected. That's the problem. That's why he's wretched, is because he's finding that he can't stay connected. He is responsible for his, his behavior, his sin, his attitude toward God. And by the time we get to the New Testament, it is not simply offer a sacrifice and everything is good. The Ecclesiastes writer says the same thing. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's having trouble making sense out of God, make, making God real every day. He's having trouble with it. This is the alienation that sin causes. And the reason I say this is because this is a serious thing today because religion is saying there really is no alienation from God. Jesus has paid it all. Some people even struggle with, is there really a curse yet in this day? Or has Jesus become the remedy for the curse? There's no more curse. I don't understand what's the penalty for sin? What's the consequence for sin? People have a right to say, you're not taking responsibility. If there is no consequence for sin, then people have a right to say, you're not taking responsibility for sin. But there is a consequence for sin. Later in the New Testament, and we read it in Deuteronomy as well, life, goodness, blessings, evil, death, curses. In the New Testament, Paul would say that, that sin produces death. Sin produces death. Sin produces death. He connects sin with death. Yeah, if you don't connect sin with death, then sin's not such a bad thing. Sin is more like a, an ethical problem, you know? We need to remember, the apostle told us that sin is death. And when something dies, it's gone. And unless the Lord revives it, it's not coming back. That's the important part. When something dies, it's gone. Or when someone dies, they're gone. 
unless, unless, unless God revives them. We need to take that seriously. When someone dies, they're gone. Or when something dies, they're gone. When a spirit dies, it's no longer, it no longer has any power. It's as if it was a literal death. When, a spirit, when the spirit dies, that's why the apostle said in Romans that sin, is, sin, sin produces death. See? Yeah. Sin produces death. It's a, down, it's a mistake to downplay the consequence of sin. It doesn't come... When something dies, you know, when, when there's a death, it doesn't come back on its own. It doesn't have any power. There's no more life there. Our bodies, they can't survive without oxygen. We can't survive, you know, without a beating heart for very long. There's a complete separation at a moment from life. And it's the same with our spirit. Without some life-giving power in our spirit, it will not survive. It will be alienated from God. Alienated from God. Now, at this point, somebody says, well, brother, I have a profession of faith. I believe in Jesus Christ. I've accepted him as my Savior. But if that only comes with a knowledge and not an experience... Once again, it becomes too human, too human. The knowledge will try and make excuses. The knowledge will try and create scenarios where you have life, but if you're sinning, you're dead. If you're sinning, you're dead. The end. No reason to keep talking after that. If we sin, we die. We die spiritually. I mean, we have to take the book at the face value at that point in, in Romans when Paul says that sin is death. And it alienates us from God. This morning, if you believe that you are a sinner, and we are a sinner if we sin. If you believe you're a sinner this morning, your spirit is dead to God. Jesus' blood does not bring life until you repent of being a sinner. Not simply seek pardon for transgressions that you have made. That sounds more like the law that came to Paul. Because if, if what you seek is simply relief from the transgressions that you have made, then you're looking for some sort of remedy in a law that's kind of like what, what God gave Israel and, through, and Paul described as making him wretched. No, 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 no. This is different. In the New Testament, we come to a different covenant. Now we're going to talk about that covenant. If we're a sinner, the blood somehow changes us from being a sinner to a saint. Now, we don't lose our humanity. We don't lose our personality. We're, we don't lose the ability to have free will. But there's a radical change. See, we need to emphasize the radical change that happens when one repents. There is a radical change. We are not the same. If we were a caterpillar, we are now a butterfly. There is a radical change when somebody repents from being a sinner. I'm not just asking God to forgive me of my sins. I'm saying, God, give me power not to be a sinner anymore. And I realize people have problems with this. But really, we have to be fair to the witness that God gives us here. There is a radical... When he talks about a new creation, a new man, a new Adam, a new covenant, a new dispensation a new creature. Things, the old things are passed away. All things are become new. I don't know what people are referring to when they say, I just want relief from the sins I've committed. That leaves you with an inclination to do evil and an inclination to do good. And God has a better plan than that. The otherwise, if we remain alienated from God, 
It's hopeless. Sin is hopeless. People need to get to the place where they feel hopeless. I can't spend another day, I can't take another day living in this hopeless way. We really need to get to a place, a person does, where they feel hopeless about the remedies that religion is offering that leave them in sin. And until you become hopeless about accepting the remedy that religion offers that leaves you in sin, you will not really partake of the blood of Christ. And you will really not be a new creation. You will have an evolution of spirit, but you will not have a revolution of spirit. You will evolve into something that is kind of like, you will have an incomplete metamorphosis. You will become as a frog instead of a butterfly. You almost get there, but the self still wants to hold on to self. There's too much humanity in that religion. It doesn't free people. It leaves them hopeless. No power to cease from offending God. And so what God offers for that hopelessness is a supernatural intervention. It doesn't come from us. It comes from above. A supernatural intervention, not a natural intervention, not a semi-supernatural intervention to be changed, to offer hope. That's one of the things that has motivated most me in my life is, is to stay connected to hope. Isn't that important for you? The world we live in today is so hopeless. To want to have anything to do with it in a, in a way of, of making it materially important for you, like, like it's, it's really important, it, it, it's, it offers hopelessness. The world does. What the world makes important, what, what the world cares about. Parents, when you're sending your children out of your home every day, I realize this is really challenging. And for children that don't yet understand what we're talking about, this, 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 this is not their experience yet. It might be yours, but it might not be theirs. I get that. But look, remember, you are sending them into a society whose spirit is hopelessness. And so we don't ultimately want that for our children. And I realize in the meantime, we have to manage life. I get all that. But never lose sight of the fact, and this is real, the world we live in is hopeless. Mom, how come we have to go to church all the time? Because that's where we hear about hope. Because you're not going to hear about that so many times in school. Now, I realize some school teachers, and we have them here, are Christian, and they love God, and, and they, would, they would do their best to offer children hope in their classroom. I get that. I'm talking about the spirit of the world. Hopeless. Vanity of vanities, it's all vanity, said the preacher. Why? Because it was hopeless. Sin creates hopelessness. Sin alienates from God. And no human intervention is going to cure that. Now, if we said that a sacrifice was all that was necessary to cure the problem, we don't need a Messiah. All we do is we go to the altar of sacrifice, whatever that is today. Maybe it's an apology. Maybe it's a, I don't know. We sit on the mountaintop. We think about it for a while. Maybe it's uh, turning over a new leaf or something else. And we offer a sacrifice for the evil <clears throat> that we have partaken of. And we get up and we say, I feel much better. That's good. I had somebody, I was part of a group of young people someplace one time, it wasn't, wasn't church, and the teacher was saying to the young people, um, where do you feel the most clean? When do you feel the cleanest? 
Is it after you like get out of the shower and you feel, oh, I feel so refreshed and so clean? Is it when you get in a bed with um, clean sheets, just been washed and dried and you know, they smell so clean, you get in a bed, it just smells clean. Or he said, is it after you leave church? Do you, do you feel clean after you leave church? And I, I've never forgotten that. And to me, it wasn't after getting out of the shower, it wasn't after new, new bed sheets. It, it, and, and you know what? It wasn't really after church. Because while I appreciated the effort that was made on my behalf at church, I was not a new creature. I was not a new creation. When I left that place, sometimes on the way home, um, I committed sin on the way home after church. I know the places, I know the people, I know what I did on Sunday morning. And I came back and Jesus loved me and he was gonna take care of it all and then the next week I did the same thing. And somebody says, well brother, that wasn't really what was taught there, it was just how you interpreted it and there were others that didn't do that. Maybe so, maybe so. But I know the teaching. And the teaching is that if you make the proper sacrifice, whatever that religious plan requires, you make the proper, proper sacrifice, it, 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 will, it will take care of the problem. But if it doesn't change the heart, it doesn't take care of the problem. Oh, and so I got to the place. And the reason I'm saying this is I'm wondering if there's anybody listening here today that feels the same way. I got to the place where I could relate to what Paul said. Oh, wretched man. Mm. Oh, wretched man. Trying to live holy without the power to do it. Oh, wretched man. Going from little hill to little hill to little hill. Oh, wretched man. Until one day, God himself cast the line that hooked me and reeled me in. And I went from stepping stone to stepping stone and I could see the places that God uh, was, was causing me to pass through. Why? So that he would let me know there's a, better, there's a better plan than the one you've been trying to find relief in. It doesn't involve a series of sacrifices. It involves a complete transformation of your soul. And he also let me know there are still people on planet Earth who are living holy, acceptable unto me, and who are not wretched. And I thought, sign me up for that plan. That's the one I want. I know about the wretched plan. Sign me up for the one that is not wretched, where people are living holy, acceptable to God, not hopeless, and they know so. They're not making excuse for little sins that require little sacrifices. That's the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. That is not the New. The New is that regimen of sacrifices God no longer accepts. Even in the Old Testament, he said, I don't want burnt offering and sacrifice. I want your heart. See, he's leading us into this. And that finds that we need a savior. Without a savior, none of the rest of this works. It's fair to say none of it works. It's fair to say that we are some good, some bad. We're just gonna be a little bit better or a little bit worse. It's fair to say that without a savior. A savior is absolutely essential because this is impossible without a divine intervention. Luke chapter 24. That's why we say choose life. I, we can say choose life because it's possible to do that. Luke 24, 5. After the women came to the tomb when Jesus died that morning, and as they were afraid and bowed down their faces to the earth, 
they said unto them, <clears throat> the angels that were there, why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spake to you when he was in Galilee? I love this part. The first day of the week, they came to the sepulcher. They found the stone rolled away, rolled away. And there were two men in shining garments, and they said, why do you seek the living among the dead? We should feel the same way. We should seek the living among the living. We should seek the living among the living. See, that, that's the cure for the hopelessness, is to seek the living among the living and to seek Jesus among the living. Mm -hmm. He brought a new covenant. It's not the same as the old. They're radically different. It's not just Jesus came and everything is new. No, this is a new covenant. Everything revolves around the need for a savior and a risen savior. This is like we're heading to Easter or excuse me, Christmas. No, no. We're, we're still heading to Easter. A risen Savior. None of this works unless Jesus rose bodily from the dead. But when the stone is rolled away and he's no longer there because he's no longer dead, it's the same that's meant to happen to us. We are meant to be buried with sin. And at some point in our tomb, God himself rolls the stone away. Because if you're dead, you can't roll the stone away from the tomb that you inhabit. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You, I'm not the only person that was foolish in trespasses and sins. Some of you were foolish. And you did things that you regret, and you did things that you said you would never do. And that is an example of being dead in a tomb with your own sins. And you have no power when you're dead. But one day, thank God, he came and rolled the stone away from the entrance to the tomb. Get up and walk. And like Lazarus, we come out of the tomb. All he has to do is command death to cease. Think of it. All Jesus has to do is command sin to stop. If that's our desire, amen, we say, Lord, I, I, I want to be your disciple. I, I want what you offer. That's all. Oh, what I offer is freedom from sin, the cessation, the ending of sin. That's what I offer. Rise up and walk. And we come out of this tomb a new creature. Why? Because we don't want to be found among the dead anymore. We want to be found among the living. None of this happens without a Savior. It creates hope. Hope is a powerful thing. You know, there's all sorts of scenarios for this in the world today, but only one, which is the gospel of the new covenant, only one really leads them to life in Christ and a new life without sin. And there is a gospel today. You know, you can be prosperous. You can make a lot of money, have a good job, have a nice car, have a good future, find a good husband or a good wife, have a nice family, all those things. You can even have a profession of Christianity. But unless there's a conversion there from the old life of sin to the new life in Christ, None of that matters. None of it matters. Don't equate the two. Don't say, well, I'm prospering because I'm a follower of Christ. If God gives you prosperity, count it as a blessing. Our dog died yesterday. We had to put him to sleep. And you know how that goes. If you've ever had an animal that you had to, to put down, right? He was sick and in pain, and it was, just, it was his time, right? And you, you, know how, you know how traumatic that is, right? You feel it. And um, 
Then I'm driving to Home Depot after the dog died. Life goes on. And um, I'm crying in the car, you know, and talking to the dog, thanking him for all the things that he gave me, you know. Um, and I looked at my wrist, and I have a scar on my wrist. If you didn't know better, you might say I had some surgery here. Doctors know this is not a surgical scar, but it, he gave this to me like 10, I don't know, he's, he's not yet 10 years old, but gave it to me a long time ago. I think I'm gonna die with this scar. And that dog gave it to me. And I said, thank you, Duke, for the scar that you gave me. Because I have a reminder for the rest of my life of the time that we had. And the reminder was not um, something prosperous. The, the reminder was a scar. Prosperity is not always the right indicator of our relationship with Christ. You know, that we look for all these blessings and we look for, you know, God solves all my problems and God, um, you know, and, th and that's how I know I'm a Christian. Sometimes, sometimes scars are the reminder of God's mercy. Sometimes we have scars of our mind, of the sin that we so foolishly committed, and it's never going to go away. We'll remember those scars for the rest of our life. And that's why it's so wonderful when God truly changes us. Because even though we did these foolish things, he forgave us. And not only did he forgive us, he gave us power not to do the same foolish things again. And one of the reasons is we chose life. Not, not kind of life, not life today and death tomorrow, and when it's death tomorrow, I choose life again. No, we chose life. I want life. I want out of the tomb. I don't want to go in and out of the tomb. Been there, done that. Been the tomb thing. Don't want to go back to the tomb thing. Want out of the tomb thing. Roll the stone away so I can get out of the tomb. And when I go out of the tomb, Jesus never went back to the tomb. Several weeks later, Jesus bodily ascended through the air. He never went back through the tomb. We don't have to go back into the tomb of sin. Choose life. Let's stand. Amen.